can take your Bibles, if you would, please turn along with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Have you ever been asked to take on a responsibility or complete a task, but you weren't given the necessary resources to carry it out? Or have you ever had a job to do, but you didn't have the right tool for the job? I felt that way yesterday. I was uh, digging out a window well. I know, my back hurts. And uh, I was using a shovel. It's a good tool. I was using a long-handed shovel. I had a short-handed shovel. But I didn't have the right tool for the job. What I really needed was a post hole digger. So about halfway through the day, I got smart, swallowed my pride, went to the hardware store, got a post hole digger, and the job went so much more smoother. It's amazing if you have the right tool for the job, how much more smoothly things go. And how frustrating it is when you don't have what you need to complete the task. Well, in our text this morning, we see that God has called us to live differently from the world as his witnesses, and he has equipped us with everything we need to accomplish this task. The Christian need not be frustrated not having the right tools for the job. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus said that Christians are the light of the world. And as the light of the world, we are to live lives that testify to the life-transforming power of the gospel. But how can we live like that? How is it possible that we can live like that? We have significant enemies. Our enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil seem to make light of the world living so difficult. Do we really have all that we need to live out the light of the gospel, to live gospel-transformed lives? Well, our text this morning reminds us that indeed we do have all we need to live as Christ called us to live, as light of the world Christians. And we have it not only in abundance, but we have it in superabundance. This is the superabundance of our salvation. So join with me. I'm going to begin reading in Titus chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to focus our attention this morning, though, on verses 5 through 7. But let me read the whole context here, since this, this is a unit of Scripture that goes together. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writing to Titus, pastoring all these various churches, helping to lead them on the island of Crete. Paul writes this, Remind them, the Christians, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable and gentle, showing every consideration for all men. 
For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, your grace and mercy are so great and has been declared in this passage and in so many other places in Scripture. Your grace that is greater than all our sins, your mercy that is more than all our sins. We thank you, Lord, that this is the case. We thank you that your mercy and grace are not meager but they are lavish, they are overflowing, they are super abundant. Help us to see that truth this morning. That yes, though our enemies are great, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and though they rage on in many ways, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Lord, thank you for equipping us and outfitting us with all we need to be the light of the world that you called us to be. Lord, help us to use the resources you've given to us to be just that, the light of the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 form a single unit of thought. All of these verses go together, even though we've broken them up now over three separate sermons, including this morning. And so what I hope to do with you today is to show you how all of these verses work together to ground our lives in the life-transforming power of the gospel. So this morning we're going to see seven life-transforming features of our superabundant salvation that empower us for light-of-the-world living. I know that's a mouthful. It's starting to sound like a, a Puritan title to a book, if you've ever seen that. They filled the front covers with a description of what's contained therein. But that is a good description of what we're going to be doing today. Seven life-transforming features of our superabundant salvation that empower us for light of the world living. The first thing we see, the first feature of our life-transforming superabundant salvation is that we are saved not by our own works or righteousness. We're saved not by our own works or righteousness. In our English translations, verse 5 begins with the glorious truth of our salvation. He saved us. Set against the dark backdrop of verse 3, describing our spiritual darkness that we were in before Christ. We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Verse 5 begins with the glorious truth of our salvation. But there are 14 Greek words that precede this glorious truth. And that's not typically reflected in our English translations. 
The words, he saved us, comes in the middle of the verse, actually, not at the beginning. Paul does this in order to bring attention to just how it is that we are saved and how we are not saved. To emphasize that which is the decisive instrument in our salvation. Also underscoring and making very clear how we are not saved. And that's actually what he leads with here in verse 5. God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Now friends, this is so important to get right. And yet so many get it wrong. We're born thinking that we can somehow earn our way into God's favor. We can earn our way back into God's good graces. Every other religion in the world, every other religion in the world teaches that heaven and acceptance with God is to be gained on the basis of our good deeds, good works. Religious observances. By having our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, we can get to heaven. So every other religion teaches. By being better than most other people, God will be accepted. Accepted. Accept us. Or by not committing certain sins. Avoiding certain sins like murder. Well, I've never killed anyone. I've never murdered anyone. So I must be all right. God will be okay with me. Even some religions which often get lumped under the general category of Christian teach falsely that salvation can be gained by doing enough of the right things or by going to church or by checking off certain boxes in your life. But the Bible could not be clearer on this issue. No one is ever saved by doing good deeds. No matter how many good deeds you may do throughout your lifetime, no amount of good deeds will ever save you, will ever bring you peace with God, will ever give you eternal life, will ever secure for you a place in heaven. You can't improve your way to heaven there's no self-help when it comes to having peace with god ephesians 2 9 teaches us that salvation is a not a result of works so that no one may boast we read that earlier in the service together paul says the same thing in second timothy 1 9 that god saved us not according to our works We're not saved by our deeds. Romans 3.20, by the works of the law, Paul says, that is by keeping God's commandments, by doing good deeds, etc., no flesh will be justified in his sight. No flesh, no human being will be made right in God's sight by doing good works, by doing good deeds. That's not how it works. That's not how God has designed salvation. And yet it's our natural inclination to think that's how things work. We earn our way. We earn our keep. 
We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're not dependent on anyone else. We do it ourselves. Perhaps that's peculiarly a temptation in our own culture of self-reliance and independence. But it's not the way of the gospel. It's not good news. Galatians 2.16 Know that a man is not justified by works of the law, by good deeds, by following the commands, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Scripture could not be clearer. You and I bring absolutely nothing to the table when it comes to salvation. The only thing we bring is our sin and our guilt. Paul says here in Titus 3.5 that we are not saved by deeds which we have done in righteousness. And we've seen already this morning how clear the Scriptures are on this matter. Don't fool yourself. You're not going to get to heaven through self-improvement. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Even our righteous deeds, our deeds done in righteousness, as though that were a possibility, they're like a filthy garment. They're soiled, they're stained by sin and guilt. As sinners, even the good deeds we do are tainted by our sinful hearts, sinful motives. Remember that old neighborhood that we came from, that we talked about? The old neighborhood of sin and depravity described for us in verse 3. That's who we were. Any good deeds that were done by us were tainted by the other sins that we had done. Sinners by nature and by choice. You see, as sinners separated from God, our deeds can't be done in righteousness. Romans 3.10 teaches us that no one on their own is righteous, not even one. All of humanity is condemned under sin and therefore incapable of truly righteous acts. And this truth eliminates all cause for human boasting and pride when it comes to salvation, doesn't it? You and I, we contributed nothing to our salvation. God brought all that was necessary for us to the table. We were helpless. We were guilty. We were stained. It eliminates all cause for boasting and pride. And it reminds us that even now as Christians that we're still dependent on God to act on our behalf, to make us shine brighter as lights of the world. We're left to ourselves, to our own strength, our own abilities. We are helpless and hopeless in the fight against sin. So the first feature we see about our superabundant salvation is that it hasn't come to us as a result of our good deeds. 
God has supplied what we lacked. We didn't bring it. We didn't accomplish it. So it's a shot of healthy humility and dependence on God right out of the gate. A second feature of our superabundant salvation is that we are saved according to God's mercy. We're not saved by works. We're saved by God's mercy. Paul has shared what has not saved us. Our righteous deeds have not saved us. They've never saved anyone. So how then are we saved? We're saved according to God's mercy. We're saved not by our works or our attempts to establish our own righteousness, but we are saved according to God's mercy. That prepositional phrase there, according to, means in keeping with or because of God's mercy. In keeping with God's mercy, because of God's mercy, we are saved. The decisive means of our salvation is not our good deeds, but God's mercy. God's mercy is more than enough to save us. We sing that great song, His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. 1 Peter 1.3 describes this manifold mercy of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What our good works could not accomplish, God's mercy did accomplish. God's mercy is His loving kindness. Aren't you glad for the loving kindness of God? The mercy of God? Loving kindness and mercy, it's the Greek version of the Hebrew word hesed. God's loyal love, His covenant love, His faithful love, His merciful love. We are saved, not on account of the deeds that we have done, but according to God's merciful love. His loving kindness that saw us in our need, in our guilt, in our inability, and He provided everything we needed, everything we lacked, in order to be made right with Him. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Beloved, we can take absolutely no credit for our salvation. All credit belongs to God and His great mercy and love and kindness toward us. This should encourage us. Christian God loves you. Christian God is still a God of mercy. He's still a God of loving kindness. He's not angry with you, Christian. He's not frustrated with you. He loves you. And He loves you because He is a God who is rich in mercy. Make no mistake about it, your sins, they are many, but His mercy is always more. A third feature of our superabundant salvation is that we are saved through inner washing, regeneration, and renewal. 
We are saved through inner washing, regeneration, and renewal. Now, the ultimate instrument in our salvation is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. We know that God is one. He's one in essence, and yet He is three in person. That's who He is. That's how He's revealed Himself to us in the Scriptures. And it is the person of the Holy Spirit who did the work of saving us. He did the internal work. He was in the gearbox of our lives, tinkering and changing us and remaking us. Our salvation isn't just some external reality. When we get saved, it's not just that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, though that's true. Our salvation has a very real and powerful inner effect upon us. It's not just external. It's an internal change that takes place. At the moment of our salvation, the Holy Spirit indwells us. He comes and takes up residence within us. And begins His inner work of transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. So that we begin to look more and more like Christ in the way we live, in the ways we respond. The Spirit begins to change us and empower us through three powerful and interconnected spiritual events. Spiritual washing, spiritual regeneration, and spiritual renewal, all listed here in this text. So let's go through them one by one. First of all, spiritual washing. That dramatically pictures inner cleansing. Don't forget where we've come from. We come from the old neighborhood of chapter 3 and verse 3. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts. We were unclean, unwashed, morally, spiritually, filthy. But then the Spirit comes at the moment of salvation and He washes us clean. He cleanses us from all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our unrighteousness. Giving us a new moral and ethical potential and usefulness. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 through 11, as he describes the old neighborhood of the Corinthians, where they've come from, and how the Spirit has cleansed them. Do you not know, he says there, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the old neighborhood. And he says, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were washed clean by the Spirit. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. 
to be washed and to be sanctified are related ideas. Instruments, you may remember in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, in the temple, instruments that were to be used in the temple and the tabernacle were ceremonially washed and they were sanctified or set apart for specific use. And so it is with the Christian. The Holy Spirit at the moment of our salvation washes us clean and sets us apart for good works in service to our God. So the first work of the Spirit is He washes us. The second work of the Spirit that Paul mentions here is regeneration. He regenerates us. Gives us new life. Washing and regeneration are closely linked here. One of the results of our spiritual washing is that we are spiritually regenerated. What does it mean to be spiritually regenerated? Well, it means to be born again. To be given spiritual life on the inside. The reality is that we as sinners are dead spiritually. And we're born that way. We're born in that condition. Spiritually dead. And we must be born again. That's precisely what Jesus says in John 3 as he speaks with Nicodemus. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? <laughs> Nicodemus, a funny guy. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's a hidden inner working of the Spirit that takes dead bones and brings them to life. That animates the inner man, causing us to be reborn, rebirthed, giving us spiritual life where before there was only death and decay. We're all born into this world, but while we have physical life, we are born spiritually dead. And we need to be born again. Born not just physically, but born spiritually. The reality is, if you're born only once, you're gonna die twice. You will die physically someday and you will experience spiritual death, which is eternal punishment in hell. So if you're born only once, you will die twice. But if you're born twice, you will die only once. You will only experience physical death and you'll immediately go into the presence of God and experience eternal blessedness and joy. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. You must be born again. And this is the work that the Holy Spirit does inside us at the moment of salvation. 
the ministry of regeneration, taking us on the inside from spiritual death to spiritual life. The third work of the Holy Spirit that Paul mentions here is renewal. Renewal. The Spirit renews us with this washing, with this rebirth. We are renewed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. In Romans 6, 4, Paul explains that the Christian has been raised to walk in newness of life. It's a whole new world for the Christian. It's a whole new way of living. This is the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. We aren't what we used to be. Amen? Hallelujah? Isn't that good news? We're not stuck in a rut. We aren't what we used to be. We are new creations in Christ. We are walking in newness of life with new desires, new capabilities, new loves, new hatreds, new gifts, new purposes, and new powers. Notice it says in verse 6 that God the Father poured out the Spirit upon us richly. The Spirit is the one inside of us doing this work. And He has been poured out upon us richly, abundantly. This too is part of the superabundance of our salvation. The Spirit is depicted here as having been unleashed like a torrent upon us. Our lives have been inundated by His life-transforming, life-giving presence. The Holy Spirit wasn't given to us as a, a drip or a trickle, but as a flood. Poured out on us richly. Moving water is powerful. It can reshape whole landscapes and dig deep canyons. The picture Paul paints here is of the power of the Holy Spirit poured out upon our lives like a mighty river, cutting new pathways in our lives, forever shaping us and changing us for the better, for the glory of God. This is what makes it possible for us to live as light of the world Christians. Brothers and sisters, this is the spiritual rocket fuel that allows us to leave the gravitational pull of the old neighborhood in verse 3 and into the glorious beyond of verses 1 and 2. The Holy Spirit working in us at the moment of salvation, washing us, regenerating us, renewing us. And this isn't something that happens just to special Christians the Christians who've discovered the secret, this is something that happens to all Christians from the very beginning. From the moment you're saved, this is the work of the Spirit in your life and He changes you from the inside out. That work has progressive and ongoing results to be sure, but it's a work that is vitally active in the life of every believer. 
because it is the Spirit of God Himself who indwells us and does this work from the very beginning. Fourth, fourth feature of our superabundant salvation is that we are saved by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Something to note here in these verses is the active ministry of all three members of the Trinity in our salvation. Note with me, look, the he of he saved us in verse 5 refers to the God in verse 4, the kindness of God our Savior. And verse 5 continues by saying that we're saved according to His mercy, God the Father's mercy. And the instrument He used to save us was the washing, regenerating, and renewing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now look at verse 6, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ. Now, if you dissect verse 6, you can see all three members of the Trinity at play in our salvation. God the Father poured out the Holy Spirit upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. God the Father is the originator and initiator of our salvation. Jesus Christ is the securer of our salvation. And the Holy Spirit is the instrument and applicator of our salvation. God the Father planned our great salvation in eternity past. God the Son secured our great salvation at the cross and in the resurrection. And God the Holy Spirit applies this great salvation to our hearts in real time at the moment of our salvation. Beloved, we have all three members of the Trinity, Trinity actively at work in our salvation and in our sanctification. We have all we need. Do you need more than God? Has God been stingy with you in giving you the tools necessary to live like light of the world Christians? No. He's given us everything. We have the very power of God, the transforming power of the Trinity at work in us to transform us into light-of-the-world Christians. Fifthly, fifth feature, we are saved by God's grace. In verse 7, with the words, so that, Paul is sharing the purpose of our salvation. The purpose of our salvation is that having been justified by God's grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. To be a spiritual heir is another way of saying we are saved. How did we become saved and spiritual heirs? We became saved and are spiritual heirs or are justified by God's grace. Now justification, that's a big word. It's a fancy word for being saved. It's a technical word for being saved. It's a legal word for being saved. Justified is the how behind our salvation. How has it come to be that we are saved? We've been justified. What does that mean? 
How can it be that we who are guilty of sin against the holy God can be forgiven and granted eternal life? The answer is we are justified. The term justified is a legal term. It means to be declared righteous by a judge. As Christians, we've been declared righteous by God. We are justified in His sight. You realize how awesome and amazing that is? Christian, today, by faith in Jesus Christ, God declares you righteous in His sight. How can He do that? He does that by accounting our sin in His Son, Jesus Christ, and by accounting Christ's righteousness to our account. We get Christ's righteousness. Christ gets our sin on the cross. And in so doing, God declares us righteous in His sight. We are justified by God's grace. Grace, by its very nature, is a gift. (laughs) Can't be earned, can't be deserved. Grace isn't anything we are owed It's a gift from God. Grace is God's unmerited favor shown toward wrath-deserving sinners. And our salvation from start to finish is all of God's grace. Grace and mercy, of course, are overlapping terms. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. How do we receive this gift of salvation, this gift of justification by grace? How do we receive it? We receive it by faith alone. Faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Knowing and believing and trusting in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, His finished work on the cross, His work as a substitute, dying the death that we deserved on the cross and rising again gloriously from the dead. And the scriptures state in Acts 16.31, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. It's the glorious message of the gospel. It's not by works, but it's by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's all of grace. Sixthly, we are saved into a divine airship and inheritance. Airship, not a ship in the air. H-E-I-R, ship. We are heirs of a great inheritance. Christians are the richest people on the planet. You may not have a lot in your pocket today or in your bank account, but you are among the richest on the planet. You're not rich by the world's standards, but you are blessed with eternal riches and spiritual wealth untold. Ephesians 1.3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christian, today you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have been spiritually united 
in Christ by the Spirit so that you are seated with Christ. Hidden with Christ in God. And part of this glorious blessing is that we've been made heirs of God's promises. Inheritors of God's blessings. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says this, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. If you're a Christian, you're a child of God. And if children, Paul continues, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may be also glorified with Him. Because we are the children of God, a work of the Spirit, born again, born of the Spirit, born from above, we become the children of God. And if we are the children of God, we become heirs of the inheritance that God has set aside for us. And not just heirs, but fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, co-heirs with Christ. Are you kidding me? It's the truth of Scripture. It's the Christian's great inheritance. James 2.5 says that Christians are heirs of the kingdom. Galatians 4, 6, and 7 says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What a reversal of fortunes. We went from being the slaves of sin, from being dead in our trespasses and sins, to being made alive with Jesus Christ, to be made Children of God, no longer slaves, but sons. And if sons, then heirs and co-heirs with Christ even. We are already heirs, heirs of God's good promises, heirs of God's good inheritance. Though we are already heirs, we have not yet come into the fullness of our inheritance, have we? Christians are already, but not yet. Can you say already, but not yet? Already, but not yet. You're already an heir, but you're not yet in full possession of all that you will be in possession of one day. It has all been bequeathed to you in the will. But the will has not been finally executed yet. We are already heirs, but there is much that is ours that we have not fully and finally possessed yet. We are already, but not yet. But make no mistake about it, that will is irreversible. That inheritance is preserved in heaven for us. And nothing and no one can ever change it. Seventh and finally... We are saved under the certain hope of eternal life. The Christian's hope is not the world's kind of hope. The world hopes for better days ahead, but they can't be sure it'll ever happen. The Christian's hope is founded upon the promises of God, promises that are sure to be fulfilled. And Christians have the certain hope of eternal life. It's not a wish or a dream, but it is a settled certainty. 
Paul began this letter talking about our salvation and how we are, have been saved, Titus 1-2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Eternal life is a settled certainty because it is founded upon the promises of God, a God who cannot lie, a God who is always and only a truth teller. Eternal life is our great hope, our settled certainty, and it is in fact our present possession. Christian, you already possess eternal life. The fullness of that eternal life, the full blessing of that eternal life, the full joy of that eternal life is yet to be experienced as part of our great inheritance that awaits us. But make no mistake about it, it is your present possession. Eternal life is first and foremost knowing Jesus and having peace with God through faith in Him. Jesus said in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that you may know you, Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, knowing the Father through the Son. Eternal life is living forever in the presence of God. Eternal life is the Christian's present possession and it will be experienced in all its fullness and joy in the life to come. For in God's presence there is fullness of joy and in His right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I wonder this morning, do you know that you have eternal life? I wonder this morning, do you know that you have been born again? given new life on the inside, with the Spirit of God changing you day by day, more and more into Christ-likeness. Do you know you have eternal life this morning? I'm here to tell you, based on the promises of God who cannot lie, that you can know with certainty today that you have eternal life. You can know by repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus alone and His finished work on the cross. Christian, eternal life is yours today, and no one can take that away from you. You can rest in the assurance of knowing that you have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is our superabundant salvation, that we are saved by our, not by our own works or righteousness, that we are saved according to God's mercy, that we are saved through inner washing, regeneration, renewal by the Holy Spirit, that we're saved by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we're saved by God's grace, that we're saved into a divine heirship and inheritance, and that we're saved under the certain hope of eternal life. This superabundant salvation is ours, so that we might no longer live like we used to, that we would not walk the streets of the old neighborhood, so that we might live in the newness of life, the life of verse 1 and 2, Titus 3, 1 and 2. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Beloved, because of our superabundant salvation, we have all we need to live such a gospel-transformed life to live as light of the world Christians, 
to the glory of God, our Savior. You have the right tool for the job. God has outfitted you and equipped you, giving us everything we need for life and salvation through our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for giving us all that we need to live in the way you want us to. Forgive us, Lord, for making excuses, for thinking that we don't have what we need, for believing that we don't have the right tools for the job. Lord, we have been saved to the uttermost. Your Spirit is alive within us. And already, He has done that amazing miracle work of washing, regenerating, and renewing. Lord, we pray that we would lean into the resources you have given to us, that we might be light of the world Christians, manifesting the power of the gospel before a watching world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.